Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Foundry Church Podcast. We upload a new message here every week, so if you want to be notified every time a new one is posted, make sure to subscribe. You can also keep up with us on our Facebook page where you can find the video messages and more. With that said, here's the next part in our series, Short and Sweet. Well, today, uh, I think it's round four in the Short and Sweet series, and we are going to dive in and we're going to work through the book of Jude. And the book of Jude, I'll be honest, I want to do a whole series on this book, but the kind of the the story we're using, this parallel story, is of Red Riding Hood today. Now, if you're visiting with us today, you may think like, wait, what's going on? Just trust me, stick with us. We, um, we have interlaced these stories with Scripture so that uh, maybe the metaphor uh, is a little more clear in the understanding. We can understand what God's saying through the book of Jude. So allow me to tell you a story. It's an ancient story. It was told for over 700 years in France. It was finally written down by Charles Perrault. When he wrote the story of Little Red Riding Hood, it was a story told. Um, it wasn't for kids initially. It was, it was a little bit dark, but um, eventually the brothers Grimm got a hold of this story, and they transformed it and changed some elements of it in the 1900s to, uh, to fit more towards children, and it's more the story we're familiar with now. But I like what Charles Perrault said. Uh, He had this significant kind of moral of the story at the end, and it was this. Don't just be afraid of the loud and scary wolves. It's the quiet, polite, well-spoken wolves that can be most dangerous. And I think that's interesting. So allow me to take you on a journey into a forest many of us would recognize. It's fall in Michigan, right? The trees are heavy with color and wet, and you go into the forest, and it can be a little dark and a little ominous. I don't know about you, but if you're a hunter and you go into the woods, we act brave, but I'll be walking into the woods, and I'll have a gun in my hand. I'm like, please, whatever you are, don't eat me that I don't see. I'm a chicken at heart, I admit it. And... um. And this story always kind of unnerved me, so catch this with me. There's this little girl, and she's called to her mother, and her mother says, I want you to take this basket of wine, cheese, and bread to your grandmother because she's sick. I guess in France, that's medicine. And um, to which, yes and amen. And, um, and she says, take this, put your red coat on, and go. So Little Red Riding Hood is getting ready to go, and her mother says to her, stay on the path, don't talk to strangers, and go straight to grandma's house. On her journey as she walks, the wolf spies her in the woods walking through that wet, heavy forest. And he comes up next to her and he says, where are you going? Well, my grandmother is very sick and I'm taking her this wine, cheese, and bread to make her well again. Do you think your grandmother would like some of these beautiful wildflowers just off the path? Oh, that sounds great. Off the path she veers, and she begins collecting wildflowers. Unbeknownst to her, this wasn't a kind thing of the wolf. He was actually getting her to delay her arrival at Grandma's house because he not only saw one meal in Red Riding Hood, he saw two meals with Grandma and Red Riding Hood. While she's picking flowers off the path, off he scurries to Grandma's house, where, knocking on the door, imitates his best preteen girl. Who is it? It's Little Red Riding Hood. Oh. Well, come on in, dear. In he comes, and indeed, story alert, kids, he eats the grandmother and puts on her bed cap and her nightdress and jumps into bed. Little Red Riding Hood, much delayed from her journey in wildflower picking, gets to the door, knocks on the door. The wolf now doing his best aged grandmother is, who is it? Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, come in. She comes in. She sees the wolf lying in bed. 
and she notices some things are different, right? She notices some things are different, but we've already learned in the story that she'll maybe kind of justify things in her mind, like she did with her mom said, stay on the path, but off the path she went when she justified grandma would love some flowers. Well, she looks at the wolf and sees her grandma, it looks weird. So she kind of listens, she's like, grandma, what big ears you have, which Thank God for kids who speak truth to power, <laughs> right? Have you ever had that? The kids are like, Pastor Eric, are you bigger this year? I am. I am. Thank you for those words of challenge and a lack of discipline, right? Grandma, are your ears bigger? Well, yes, dear. They're all the better to hear you with. Oh, that's kind of sweet, Grandma. But your eyes are kind of huge. Well, it's all the better to see you with. Oh, once again, Granny for the win. I gotta be honest, your teeth look a little weird and kind of sharp and long. All the better to eat you with. A shriek is heard, and the little girl, again, sorry kids, is eaten. But the, the shriek echoes throughout, throughout the hardwoods of the forest where a woodsman and his axe hears it. He responds and he runs to the house of Grandma where he finds a very chunky wolf lying asleep with Red Riding Hood and Grandma on his belly. Taking his axe using hunter lingo, he field dresses said wolf and pulls Grandma and Red Riding Hood out to safety. What does this have to do <laughs> with the Bible? Stick with me. There's a book called Jude. Jude is short for Judas. Judas was the brother of James, and James, this is how it's understood in Scripture, James is the brother, half-brother of Jesus. He's the son of Mary and Joseph. So Jude, I don't know why he claimed James over Jesus. I would always put Jesus on my resume. By the way, in case you want to hire me, Jesus is my half-brother. <laughs> Use that reference first. But he says he's the brother of James. James is the leader and the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Jude is the leader and pastor of the church in Peter's hometown, in Cappadocia, in the Decapolis, and Nazareth. So he is a leader in the church, most likely the half-brother of Jesus, and he writes a very, very Jewish letter to the church in Israel, in both Nazareth and the northern part of the country, and in Jerusalem. He writes this letter to them, and he does a lot of referencing back to the Jewish scriptures and their understanding. I love what he starts with, though. He says, I, I wanted to write and talk to you about Jesus, but I feel compelled to do some other things. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the entire book of Jude. Don't worry. It's like 24 verses. You'll be fine. But here's the thing. In this book, you're going to see how Jude is calling the church into something Join me. If you have your Bibles, you can open to the uh, book of Jude. It's towards the very end of the Bible. And if not, you can follow the screen as I read along. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy and peace be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about your salvation, to write to you about Jesus, the, the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write to you and to urge you to contend for the faith. Take out your little mental highlighter and just highlight that word contend. We're going to come back to it. Keep it in your, in your quiver, so to speak. I urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly 
slipped in among you. They are ungodly people. They pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. You need to hear the revolutionary tone going on in this. What he's saying is so countercultural. The only sovereign and Lord being Jesus would be mind-boggling because at this time, Caesar is Lord, and only Caesar. So to say Jesus is our only sovereign and Lord is a transformational statement. He now goes into a history lesson that would be um, very basic to to the people reading this. It would be like me telling you, did you know that the Indians, uh, the American Indians and uh, the Pilgrims once had a big party in like mid-November, called it Thanksgiving? You'd be like, yeah, we have it every year, right? We have Thanksgiving. It, It would be known as a culture. This is one of the things he does. This is known as a culture, what he's about to say, but it's important that he says it. He's building a case. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave, them up to, gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example for those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people who've slipped in among you pollute their own bodies, they reject authority, and they heap abuse on celestial beings. This is an important thing that he's talking about. He's talking about how they speak of angelic beings and they heap abuse on them. And and Jude goes on to say something. It's really interesting. He says it this way, but even the archangel Michael. Now, we may not, you may not know much about the angels, but there are three named archangels in scripture. There is Gabriel, the messenger of God. There is Michael, the warrior of God. And there is Lucifer who opposed God and was sent, cast out of heaven and became Satan. So when, when Jude is talking about celestial beings, he even uses an example of the worst of the worst of Satan himself and how you don't abuse the name of celestial beings. It says this, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people, these people who've come in, they, they slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, like an irrational animal, those things will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Let's stop there for just a minute. Let's spend a minute in this. This is um, where he's built his case to accuse them of something. He's built this historical case of who the people of Israel are to, to nail, verse 11. Cain, I think Genesis chapter 5, have you ever heard the phrase, they're raising Cain, they're raising a wild, uncontrollable son. Cain was the brother of Abel. Abel offered a sacrifice to God that was pleasing. Cain's was not. He despised his brother and he killed him with a rock. And when God came and said, why is your brother's blood calling out to me from the ground? Where is your brother? And he said, what am I, my brother's keeper? He's a horrible person in Scripture. And Jude is saying they've taken the role of Cain. They're destroying their own brothers. 
They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Balaam was a non-Israelite hired by someone else to prophesy against the armies of Israel. And he was put to death by the armies of Israel. God opposed him. And Judah's saying, these people are speaking a false word about the people of God. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Korah was one of the leaders of Israel during the time of the Exodus, the wandering in the desert for 40 years. Korah became arrogant and indignant against Moses, his brother Aaron, and Miriam. And he rose up against them and said, basically, who do you think you are to rule over us? Moses stepped back and just said, God, they're yours. Deal with them. I, I'm not going to fight them. If they're, if they're right, then judge me, God. I'm, and Moses steps back. God proves his judgment true when the earth opened up and ate them. Yeah. <laughs> right, so I just went, oh, have you not heard that, Bubba? Sorry about that. Um, so the earth opens up and swallows not only Korah and the men involved in the rebellion, but their households as well. And Jude is saying, they're just like them. Remember the worst people in our history? The John Wilkes Booth, the Lee Harvey Oswalds, that's who they are. They're the worst of the worst. They're the kind of people we despise because they're against God. These people, it goes on to say, are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you Without the slightest qualm, shepherds who only feed themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted. They are twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh man who lived from Adam, prophesied, saying this, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words that ungodly sinners have spoken against God. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own gain. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers, which is a mocker, who follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who follow their mere natural instincts and do not have the Holy Spirit living in them. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy but mix it with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all, before all ages, both now and forevermore. Amen. Get at it, Jude. Right? That is one letter written to the church. And when we look at this, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about his metaphors, the things he said these un ungodly people were. You're going to hear me say trees, dead trees. You're going to hear me talk about wolves and brute beasts. Those things are all describing one thing. They're all one and the same. So when we talk about those things, they're not different. They are different ways of describing the same thing. The first thing we want to talk about is trees without fruit. 
trees without fruit. They are clouds without rain, blown by the wind. In this summer in Zambia, when our family was there doing missions, um, they, they've been without rain for so long. And when you'd see clouds build on the sky, the, the edge of the horizon, you would see people like hope. Hope that rain was going to come. And it's really hard to watch people hope rain's coming when it never gets there. They're like clouds without rain. They never satisfy the thirst. They're blown along by the wind. They're like autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. What happens in churches, we often talk about fruit. And if you're not from the church, you may think like, do they, are they just mean to fruit? Do they not like vegetables? How do they feel about dairy, right? You may not always understand if you're not from the church. We get comfortable in our own language, but we need to understand that fruit is something that God talks about in his word for a reason. Because fruit only comes from a tree deeply rooted. So when we talk about fruit in the Christian life, it's talking about the things that grow naturally out of us when we are rooted in Christ Jesus. When we're rooted in Jesus Christ, there is the natural occurrence of fruit. You never walk by a tree and it's like apples, like that'd be weird in a talking tree, right? It's not trying, it's just rooted and growing fruit. When you're rooted in Christ Jesus, you're naturally fruitful. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say it this way in the book of Galatians. Now the fruits that naturally occur out of a life rooted in Christ are these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those things begin to occur naturally out of the life of the Christian who is rooted in Jesus Christ. Those things come about naturally. You don't have to work at it so much as you are that. You are naturally producing the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control as evidenced by the Spirit of God in your life and being rooted in Christ. When we talk about fruitful living, that's what we talk about. And I know it can be strange. I know people can be weird about fruitful. I know some people are like, you know, I'm not judgmental. I'm just a fruit inspector to which I want to be like, thwack right in the neck. Like, that just drives me nuts. I think it's so judgmental. But it's one of those things we hear in the church and maybe don't understand. But the reality is a fruitful life is a life evident, evidenced by being rooted in Christ. We are fruitful because of who we're rooted in. But... We know a tree by its fruit. Jesus talked about this. Jesus said this, by their fruit, and this is Matthew 7, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It's a a rhetorical question. Of course not. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree grows bad fruit. Right? He, He makes no qualms about it. A good tree can't grow bad fruit, and a bad tree can't go grow good fruit. Every tree that doesn't grow and produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire because by your fruit, you will recognize who they are. So fruitfulness matters, but on the other side, we can, we can recognize that this, this thing he says, that they're trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. I think one of the reasons Jude is saying this is being that he's referencing directly the people who have slipped into the early church and they are doing things that, well, this is what they did. 
They maybe were living and dead in their sin and they saw or heard the gospel and they responded to it, but not in such a way where they received Jesus Christ, but more than likely, what they did is they came to a knowledge of grace without ever fully receiving it. They took up involvement in the church and ministry without ever being confessing, repenting, and being made new. And then rejoiced in living in their old sinful patterns and life while pretending to be part of the body of Christ. That's a dangerous thing. People who like what they hear but never actually accept it, receive it, and live into it. And live continually in their sinful, natural state. Here's one thing that I think is great for this story of Little Red Riding Hood. The wolf never changed his nature. He just changed his appearance. He never changed his nature. He looked like grandma, but a grandma he wasn't. He pretended to be something, but he was actually what he had always been. His nature hadn't changed. In Christ, we have a change of nature. Sin no longer becomes who we are. We are now Christians. We live differently because Christ trades natures. He gives us a new nature. And we can recognize that those in Jude's, in the book that Jude's writing, there are those people in there who've never submitted to the authority of God and Scripture and allowed Christ to redeem and transform their nature. And that's a serious issue. But here's the thing. If a life rooted in Christ produces certain fruits, a life, well, When you're a dead tree, you produce a certain necrotic fruit of your own. These are what they are. The fruit of dead trees, the traits of a dead tree are grumblers, fault finders, boasters, flatterers, and scoffers. Grumblers, kind of the worst, aren't they? They're kind of the worst. The other day, Erica and I went to uh, Morningstar Cafe up in Grand Haven because they have really good breakfast. And um, we were up there, we were paying and the girl who was going to, the young lady who was going to let me pay was on the phone with someone. And because I'm intrinsically nosy, I was watching what she was writing. I'm like, oh, you know, looks like, you know, Paul's having a birthday. That's pretty cool. It's his 60th. Oh, they're getting in the triple chocolate cake. So delicious. And I'm just like watching. It took about three minutes or as in our immediate gratification timeline in this generation, it felt like 10 years. And she gets off the phone and she's like, Sorry, and I'm like, no, it's great. It looks like George is having a birthday. I wish I was invited. You know, it'd be great. I love your chocolate cake. And we were just talking for a second. I was very nice, friendly, paid the bill, left a healthy tip, just all around decent person, right? As we go to the car, Erica tells me, you should have heard what those old ladies were saying about you from behind your back. And I was like, was it the eye candy thing? (laughs) Was it? I was ready. I was ready for her. Like sometimes it's like catnip, right? No, no, it wasn't that. Um, no, it super wasn't that. They were, sorry, that was, they, they were sitting there and like, there he is, mister, I didn't get my eggs perfectly on time, and, and they were grumbling about me, who was being a lovely person, I was being patient, but here's the thing, they, grumblers love, grumblers love, love to find and assume the worst. They find and assume the worst. They never look for anything good. Fault finders, 
they celebrate failure and they can't quit talking about it. Boasters never get themselves out of the frame of the lens. It's all about them and they're constantly, even when they're asking about you, they're finding a way to hype themselves. Flatterers, oh, the greasy, smarmy flatterers. Aren't they the worst? You know a flatterer when you feel like you need to take a shower after you talk. Like just, ah, right? Because they compliment you, but you know there's always a subtle motive and you don't know what it is. And they'll say something really nice about you, but you're also worried, what would you say just before you saw me? Scoffers, they mock everything. They mock everything. What Jude's saying is their nature doesn't change. Just like that wolf in the story, his nature didn't change, his appearance did. And we can't just go on appearances because here's the thing. Dead trees are motivated by instinct, not the Holy Spirit. There is a natural born instinct in all of us, but it's broken. It's broken. And like a broken clock is right two times a day, so we can be right sometimes with our instincts. We need to be careful to watch people who have really good instincts but do not evidence the winsome, attractive nature of the Holy Spirit living within them and calling people and pointing people, not to themselves, but only to the person of Christ. We have to be careful. It says this um, in Jude. It says, these people who divide you follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. What they often do is they get enough information. They know enough terms, maybe about Christianity or the life you live. They find out what matters to you, and they use it to their advantage in order to manipulate others to fulfill their own desires. Here's how I see it working out. Where are you going? To which Little Red Riding Hood spills the beans, doesn't she? I'm just headed to my grandma's house. She's super sick. Oh, do you think your grandma would like some of these wildflowers? He doesn't say, that's awesome. She can't really fight back. I'm going to eat her if you don't mind picking flowers for five minutes. That's not what he says. Oh, do you think your grandma would like some of these wildflowers? Distracts her. Get her off path. Gets her off off what she's supposed to be doing. And that's what I see these manipulative people doing. They manipulate us. They manipulate the church. They get in, they speak the right way and act a certain way. But if you look at the fruit of their life, there's no spiritual fruit, but there is the traits of a dead and necrotic tree that is fruitless. One of the ways we can see people manipulate nowadays is, um, I don't know if you've ever had it where your grandparent calls you and is like, are you in trouble? My Aunt Leela called me once and, she, and I answered the phone. She's like, Eric, dear are you in trouble? And I was like, most likely, what'd you hear? (laughs) I was like, oh man, this is coming from California, so I'm a little nervous. And she's like, well, I got a call from uh, some police, to which I'm like, tell me more. Um, And I have to send $600 in like visa cards to them right away, or you're never going to get out of jail. And I'm like, I'll probably never get out of jail, but don't send them money. Right, Grandma, don't send, or Aunt Leela, don't send them money. They're playing on your emotion, saying, if you don't do this now, Eric's going to rot in jail. Which, I'm not, but what'd she do? She called me, and she's like, is this true? Is this true? Because they prey on people's emotions. This happens to grandparents a lot. Your grandson's in jail. You better send money now, or we are locking him up, and he won't get his first call. Don't try calling him. That's a violation. Okay. And they send $1,200 in gift cards to somebody who doesn't have their grandson. They manipulate for their own gain. And it happens in the church. 
Jude chastises the rivals of the gospel as arrogant, arrogant complainers and fault finders who flatter and weasel their way in. The uh, Asbury Bible Commentary says this, the false teachers claim that their experience in grace elevates them above the necessity of moral discipline. One of the things we find in this book of Jude is that people are driven by their lusts, their passions, and their desires, and they no longer submit to the authority and influence of Scripture. And they live sexually immoral lives. They live lives that are an apostasy to the gospel, and they pretend that it's all good. And I will tell you this, this goes on in the church even today. It goes on today. But it doesn't matter if, if you are living a, sec- it matters if you're living a sexually immoral life. It doesn't matter what your excuse for it is. Because you are not called to be you. You are called to be transformed by the power of the Spirit into the image of Christ. And it doesn't mean that you can indulge every desire, every passion, and every undisciplined act. Sexually, in your appetites, and your cravings, and your hobbies, we have to be people who understand that that is not a fruit of the Spirit to live an undisciplined life. So how do we guard ourselves and our church? Because this is a real thing, isn't it? There's tons of stuff going on that say it's no big deal if we live sexually immoral lives. I would say it's a huge deal, and so would Jude. I would say it's the issue going on right now, and we have to look at it and understand that we have to do something. So how do we guard ourselves and our church? Remember I told you to highlight the word contend. Contend. We have to contend. We have to contend for this. What does it mean to contend? Jesus uses an interesting word when he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow gate. That make every effort is related to the word contend. When you look at it in other translations, it's actually akin to agonize, to agonize. And I don't know about you, but you put me in an exercising place and I am in agonizing. But it's a discipline that is good in my life. It's a discipline to agonize, to make every effort to contend. 1 Corinthians 9 says that everyone who's going to run a race enters into strict training. Colossians says, the Apostle Paul says, to this end, I strenuously contend. Colossians also says that regarding uh, Epaphras, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. Now, I don't know about you if you've ever been to a wrestling match. I have enjoyed watching my oldest son wrestle. It is an awesome man-on-man kind of like, I mean, you just go at it. It's rough and it's brutal and he's getting bigger than me now and it hurts and I don't like to wrestle him anymore. When I contend with him, I contend with a great failure of possibility in my life. Like, I'm cheap now. I bite I'll pull hair. He's basically fighting a mule at this point. I have no rules. I'm not losing. And he'll admit, he's like, yeah, yes and amen. But I love watching him wrestle. He's not a shooter. He's actually a thrower. He'll put him in a headlock, and he's like, what, pop? And I'm like, yes, I love it. I love to watch the wrestling. That's what Scripture's saying. Wrestle it. Fight it. Get engaged. Don't just do, eh. I'm kind of a Christian. That is not contending. We have to contend for the faith. The Apostle Paul says it this way, and I just love it. I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. 
And how did he do it? He contended. He fought against what was wrong trying to get into the gospel community. So there's some ways we have to grab onto this and own it for ourselves. Because we, like Paul, like Jude, like all the apostles, are called to the same life. So, contend. Contend. How do we do it? Well, maybe this will help. Go into strict training, as it said in Colossians. We would say go into spending time with God's word. Serve others above yourself. Be actively involved and not just attending and taking. Be a part of it. To strenuously contend. Flee from temptation. Worship God in other settings than just this. Let your work life be a place of worship. Let your life behind the steering wheel be a place of worship. Let everything you do be a place where you strenuously contend for the gospel. You don't let temptation in. I don't know what the blank is you should fill in here, but I'll tell you this, to strenuously contend, fleeing that temptation, worshiping God in other settings and being fully engaged in your faith, whatever that would look like, wrestle with it. Maybe you need to wrestle with some things. Bring your questions before God and lay them out before the one who holds the answers. But be persistent in prayer. Be persistent in prayer. I love watching wrestling. And I love a good technical wrestler. Somebody who just goes and gets point after point. And you'll see a guy who's up like nine or ten to nothing on a guy. And that poor kid just looks like he's just getting wailed on. But then the really good wrestler thinks, I've got him. And suddenly that other kid has just enough gas in the tank to throw a reversal and pin him. You can't let off the throttle in this life. You have to wrestle. You have to be persistent in your prayer life, in your faith journey. Getting into a place where God is the only answer, we call it the miracle zone here at the foundry, where the air is thin and life seems perilous, that is part of our wrestling journey of faith and fighting the good fight, persevering with your faith, when it's tested, when it's questioned, college students, high school students, when your faith is tested, you have to have a place to go. And that takes me to point number two. First thing is we do, how do we guard ourselves and our church? We contend. But the second thing is we keep ourselves in the love of God. The love of God in Christ Jesus is a place where you are safe. And they can throw, the world can throw everything at you. But in the love of God expressed in Christ Jesus, when you're in Christ, when you're rooted in him, there is nothing that can remove from you your salvation or your hope in Jesus Christ. We must contend, but we also must contend from a place of power. And that power comes from being in the love of God in Christ, period. We can't stray from it. We can't make our own rules to this. We live in faithful relationship with the Lord our God. We're mindful that the mercy of God is not based on our merit or our good works. The mercy of God is dependent on the finished work of Christ on the cross in his resurrection and poured into our lives. Amen? We find ourselves being mindful of a life that is dependent on the grace of God, but also inviting the Holy Spirit time and again to fill us and make us aware of what we should be fighting. Don't fight every battle, just win the war. We have to lean into that spiritual discipline. How do we guard ourselves in our church? We contend. We keep ourselves in the love of God. And here's where I think it gets really fun. We snatch others 
from destruction and the fire. Don't ever forget that there is a weight on your life. There is a burden that lays over this church and its individual members to be people who contend, who stay rooted in the love of God and snatch people from the fire and destruction. You are a living witness to the gospel. Remember the woodsman? Remember him? In the story, he's the tail end of the story. Nobody really thinks about the woodsman, but it's a really big deal when Red has been eaten and so his grandma and the woodsman attends his ear to the cry of them and he goes in and finds that sleeping wolf full of grandma and Red Riding Hood and what does he do? He opens him up and takes him out. We should snatch people back from the jaws of the one who would destroy them. We should be actively involved, not just in evangelism, but in discipleship, in being in groups, in having having a community where everyone's welcome to come as they are, but they meet God on his terms, not ours. We have to be like the woodsman. Get your flannel on and get to work. You are called as a church to literally snatch people back. Have you ever seen the videos on like, um, I don't know, Facebook or YouTube or something, and I love it. I watch the dad ones where it's like you see, like, dads catching kids. They're so awesome. One dad's like, yeah, I totally see that. It's awesome. Like, a kid's on a swing set, and the kid shoots off, and the dad, like, Thor catches him without looking. And like, dude, stop doing that. Dad, you're awesome. I know. Off you go, right? There's one, there's one video where a dad's, like, laying on his back on the couch, and there's kids all around. He's in a white shirt and tie, so they were obviously at church that morning, and they're just kind of lazing around on a Sunday afternoon, and they have one little baby whose noggin is pretty big, and he's like, oh, I'm going over, Pops, you know, and nobody's there to help him. He kind of goes over, he flops off the couch, and the dad, without looking, catches him, and his wife's like, oh, so handsome. Saving babies, you know, and yeah, and you know, like, she's like, I like you, sir, right? Why? Because all of a sudden, out of what could be, because the mom was far away, she's like, ah! she's like nothing to fear here, I'm amazing, right? I love that image for us. The devil thinks he wins time and again, and time and again, the gospel snatches lost people out of darkness into the light. Be the woodsman. Make no excuse. Give no quarter in your life to the place that says, it's not really up to me, someone else will do it. No one else will do it. You're the woodsman. You're the one called to be out there in the world snatching people back from the brink of discussion by your winsome, loving, joyful, spirit-filled life that is rooted in Christ Jesus. And people can't get over the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness and self-control of a Christian They don't understand it, but they know they want a part of it. Go, root yourself in the one who gave himself for you. And let us be a church who's out there constantly snatching people back from the brink and showing the love of God to the most unlikely of people. Pray with me. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the calling of the church. Thank you for the book of Jude. Lord, this this little letter is just is just explosive in the church. It calls us to a life dependent on you. So may we not be people who are dead trees, who are rooted in all the wrong things. May we be rooted in Christ. May we not entertain conversations we shouldn't have and get distracted from our purpose. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Speak to us, your church, in such a clear 
and divine tone that we can't ignore it any longer. The high calling to be people who snatch people back, but also the high calling to just be rooted. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a hunger for your community to be in groups and godly conversations rather than just any conversation. God, help us to be fully alive in you. Help us to be your church, faithfully following you in mission. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, would you join me as we stand and respond in song? There's an ancient Hebrew word, we call it holy. And holy means basically this, to be set apart. We are to look distinctly different from the rest of the world, of the world, not because of our good works, but because of the impartation of the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus into our lives. He transforms us. The question is, will we walk with him? Will we obey him when he calls us to do something that seems crazy? Will we be set apart for God? Because you can't be set apart-ish. God is holy, and we could not get back to him, but thanks be to God for Christ Jesus, who in Christ Jesus redeemed us back to himself, and he called us out of the same words he used in Exodus, be holy, for I am holy. Be set apart, because I am set apart. Come to me. Church, hear me when I say this. You are called to contend for this faith. It is not a passive, receptive thing. You go out and you grab it sometimes. You fight for it. You speak up. You love people. And in so being rooted in Christ, your contending for the faith will not be an act of war. It will be an act of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And the world will have no argument. Make no mistakes. That in this place, we are a room full of woodsmen called to a task. And it may be difficult, but that does not change the calling. Amen? As you leave, we have two places on the side here where you can be prayed for. If you have any prayer needs of any kind, we would love to spend some time praying with you. Make sure you grab devotions on your way out the door. If you're interested in groups, hit the information desk. We'd love for you to be a part of one of our groups as you go from this place. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My friends, it is time for the church to leave the building. You are dismissed. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. If you're interested in preparing for the next part, what you can do is you can go onto our website and find our weekly devotions. Being in God's word every day is part of what we call our weekly rhythm here at the Foundry. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message and can't wait for you to join us again next week.